0: Welcome to another ABI podcast. I'm Amy Quackenbos, the Deputy Executive Director of the American Bankruptcy Institute. Today I'm joined by Lisa Tancredi and Mark Gittleman, who co-authored ABI's newest publication entitled Navigating Banking in Bankruptcy, a Guidebook. Our podcast will explore this book and its importance for bankruptcy practitioners and lenders. By way of introduction, Lisa is a bankruptcy and creditors' rights partner practicing in Gebhardt & Smith's Wilmington, Delaware offices. During her more than 20 years of private practice, she has represented almost every type of constituent that may be involved in a financially distressed commercial relationship. Her practice most recently has focused on representing financial institutions, funds, agents, and lenders in a syndicated financial facilities and other creditors both in and out of court. Lisa is a past president of the Bankruptcy Bar Association for the District of Maryland. From 2013 to 2016, she chaired the Maryland Local Bankruptcy Rules Committee, spearheading comprehensive revisions to the local rules. She currently chairs the Maryland Bankruptcy Bar Association U.S. District Court for the District of Maryland Liaison Committee, and she's also editor for the ABI Journal and is a past co-chair of ABI's Labor and Employment Committee. Mark is the Managing Chief Counsel of Bankruptcy and Business Reorganization for PNC Bank National Association based in its Philadelphia market. He is primarily responsible for providing legal services for PNC Bank's Troubled Loan Portfolio. Prior to joining PNC Bank in 1992, Mark practiced at Blank Rome in Philadelphia. He's a member of the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and District of Columbia Bars, has served as vice chair of the Electronic Transactions in Bankruptcy Subcommittee of the Business Bankruptcy Committee of the ABA's Business Law Section, and he lectures frequently on bankruptcy and UCC issues and on pro bono participation. Mr. Gittleman is the Pro Bono Coordinator Emeritus for the PNC Legal Department, and is currently a member of the Board of Trustees for the Philadelphia Bar Foundation. So Lisa and Mark, welcome to ABI's podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us.
0: So my first question is, how did this book come about? I think
2: Mark and I have different reasons for wanting to be involved in this book. For me, I found myself as counsel for lenders getting uh, recurring similar questions from my clients about the nuts and bolts of their bank accounts and how bankruptcy affected them. So I would get questions like, "I have a prepetition check that's been presented. What do I do with it? Or can I freeze this account? Uh, questions like that. Um, and also, I was getting questions about how to limit exposure whenever the
1: bank's customer was looking a little bit shaky. So so for me, uh, when I was outside at a law firm, I would see a bankruptcy from the creditor perspective or the outside lawyer perspective. Being in-house gives me a unique perspective, and the issues that are in this book for me are issues I see frequently and, frankly, I've been lecturing on for most of my career as an in-house lawyer. Uh, many people outside the bank world, the banking world, don't really fully understand how bank products work and how bankruptcy can affect their banking relationships. They come in, they get deposit accounts, they get loans, they use other services, but they don't always fully understand how they work and how bankruptcy could affect them. So I looked at this book as a way to finally put down on paper things that I've been talking about for years.
0: I love these types of books, and ABI has, ABI has several of them, where it's a book that is aimed at really clients, but also can be used by lawyers as well. So was the intended audience both bankruptcy attorneys and uh, lenders? Yes, absolutely. Um,
2: I was looking around for a book that would encompass these types of topics, and I just couldn't find one. So when we decided to write it, we decided we wanted our audience to be lawyers, but also bankers who might not be as familiar with the legal world as the lawyers are. Uh, but then also provide a resource to the lawyers who might not fully understand banking.
1: And it may also be helpful for, obviously, the U.S. trustee, uh, judges, and others in the court system to help them understand what goes on in a bank from a depository point of view. Many of them have a good sense of what banks do by way of being a creditor. But as a depositor, I think it can be somewhat uh, opaque to the rest of the world about how banks work and this book was an attempt to try and open that door a little
0: bit. Well, it really provides some practical information for both professionals um, on, on both the legal side and the financial side. So uh, it starts with a great overview of the bankruptcy process in the first chapter. And then in Chapter 2, it discusses treasury management systems. And so can you guys tell me why it's so important to understand treasury management systems in the context of a bankruptcy? So
2: understanding the treasury management system is kind of like understanding a company's organizational chart or its organizational structure when you're doing a deal. You have to know how the money flows in order to know who has rights in which account and how that's going to be affected by a bankruptcy. Also, you need to know, who's, you know how the money flows so that you can properly have security interests that are affected by control in the account.
0: So it's really like doing your homework before you get into bankruptcy.
1: Right. And, and money is the lifeblood of any, any debtor in bankruptcy. That's how they survive. So a treasury management system is analogously the, you know, the, the capillary network that allows the blood to throw, flow throughout the company's system. We need to understand that to know how it could be stopped up in a bankruptcy.
0: That makes sense. After chapter two, the book goes on to describe several types of bank products. And the first one you discuss is a deposit account. Can you uh, briefly review what a deposit account is and then tell us some of the key items to understand regarding a deposit
1: account? Sure. So a a deposit account isn't uh, sort of a bucket of cash that sits in a vault somewhere. And some people may think that. Uh, A deposit account is really an obligation of the bank So when you deposit money, you're giving your money to the bank. The bank sets up an electronic record that says, we have your money, here's where it is, here's the interest you're earning on it. And if it's a demand deposit account, as most accounts are, when the depositor comes in and says, I want my money, the bank is obliged to give it to them on demand. So if you're a depositor, you would show what's in a deposit account as an asset and a loan that you would take out as a liability. From a bank's perspective, a deposit account is a liability. The bank owes the money to the depositor, and a loan is an asset that they collect on in the end. So it was important to hear that from the banker's perspective. That's right. That's great.
2: And from the debtor's perspective, um, I think it's important to understand how the bank processes work and what the bank can and cannot do. Uh, A good example is whenever a debtor files, it doesn't want its pre-petitioned checks to get paid. Well, how do you accomplish that? What information does the bank need to know and what kind of lead time does it need so that it can accomplish the goal of making sure that those checks aren't paid?
0: Great. In addition to deposit accounts, you also discuss automated clearinghouse transactions, or um, as we, many of us know them as ACHs. In some, what are these, and why do you say in the book that pre-bankruptcy planning is so important with these products?
1: So ACHs, it's a way to transfer funds, either into an account or out of an account. And it's a way to aggregate transfers. The, the reason it's more important in the bankruptcy context is many debtors pay their payroll Via ACH, so they'll hire an outside uh, payroll company. They'll send them monies uh, earlier in the week, and then that company will pay the payroll at the end of the week when payrolls do on Friday. And that's done by ACH. When a bankruptcy occurs, the ACH system is frozen and can be opened up again if you st- go through the steps uh, set forth in the codes we described in the book. But it's important to know how the ACH system works. How monies flow in and out and through that system, uh, it, it, what the protections are if you send out an ACH and there's an error, or if you're receiving an ACH, can it be called back, and then how bankruptcy overlays that entire process.
2: This was one of the more difficult chapters to write, frankly, because the workings of the ACH system just make everybody's eyes want to glaze over. <laughs> uh, so we <laughs> tried to explain the ACH system in a non-technical matter so that these underlying legal concepts could be understandable. Uh, There's a lot of jargon and acronyms that get used, and I think the book does a pretty good job of simplifying it um, as much as possible so that it can be understood by lawyers and non-lawyers alike.
0: Well, and I love the glossary at the end. It It really lays out some of those terms. That you come across, especially with the ACHs, that you know you can have easy reference to when you're you know, trying to navigate that issue. I, that was great to include that. So another a product that you talk about are credit cards and credit card processing issues that arise in bankruptcy. Can you discuss one or two of those issues and identify some ways to limit risk associated with credit card liability from a lender's perspective?
2: So credit card processing can be an overlooked type of exposure for a bank. Uh, The credit card processor makes the merchant able to turn its goods or whatever it is that it's selling into cash. And the funds are made available to the merchant before the credit card processor actually gets paid by the consumer or the, the ultimate purchaser. There's also credit exposure to the credit card processor for returns of purchased goods if they were found to be inadequate in some way or when the charges are disputed. That would be whenever a credit card holder says, well, I didn't make the charge,
1: and the charge gets reversed. So it's interesting, and um, I see this issue more and more now. Uh, debtors and uh, even creditor lawyers sometimes think of credit card exposure as just part of the treasury management system. And the truth is, as Lisa just said, it really is an extension of credit on behalf of the lender, the, the bank issuing the card, Um, to allow someone to go out and borrow money under the card that they have to pay in the end. So the treatment of how you establish the card system or reestablish the card system in bankruptcy is important, and I've seen recently uh, debtors attempting to have it established under their cash management order when in fact it really is a loan and should be established under their financing or cash uh, collateral stipulations, and it should get the protections of any type of, outside the ordinary, course course, uh, credit uh, extension in bankruptcy. Um, by way of exposure, meaning uh, what's the exposure, credit cards also have a chargeback uh, tail of about 180 days. So even though the credit card exposure may have been terminated, there may in fact be uh, additional chargebacks for if you're the merchant-issuing cards or accepting cards. Um if somebody comes in and buys something and then returns it, there could be 180 tail on something like that, which also affects, in bankruptcy, the, the credit structure, the uh, creditor structure of the uh, case. Another
2: somewhat related issue is certain deposit accounts are set up just to receive credit card payments. Um, that's not necessarily when the deposit bank is a credit card processor. But in connection with complying with the U.S. trustee guidelines, which... suggests that new accounts have to be opened and all old accounts have to be closed. Well, if you have a large group of consumers or a large group of customers that have set up automatic payments through their credit cards into uh, the debtor's designated bank account, then opening a new account can really disrupt cash flow. So it's important to understand where the funds are coming from as they come into these accounts so that you can ask for waivers from the U.S. trustee's guidelines. Uh, if
0: necessary. Those are all really important things that could be overlooked if you didn't really understand the credit card processing system and, and what that means. So, And the book does a really good job of explaining all of that. But another sometimes overlooked area has to do with customer privacy and the impact of customer identity regulations on bankruptcy transactions. Can um, you explain more about that?
1: Sure. Uh, banks are highly regulated entities. And since 2001, and the implementation of the USA Patriot Act, banks are charged with not only being your uh, lender, but also looking out for suspicious transactions and are required to vet customers, third parties, sources of funds to make sure that there isn't criminal activity going on in the banking system. The, and the, the requirements are actually fairly intricate, and they change from time to time. And banks have to keep up with these requirements and institute protocols through transactions to comply. People outside don't generally see that stuff, and sometimes it can be a surprise when a bank says, we can't approve this transaction unless we fully understand who all the parties are involved in the transaction. So... um, Uh, We're seeing this now more and more creep into bankruptcy cases as well when assets are sold through the bankruptcy process or uh, new capital providers are coming into the bankruptcy process. The issue of understanding bank requirements regarding who's the customer, who's the source of funds, who's the new capital provider, who's the asset purchaser are becoming uh, larger issues every day. Those
2: issues... The processes that the banks use also vary from bank to bank. But I think it's important that parties, too, that are dealing with transactions that involve new sources of capital or funds coming in from another source or um, purchases that pay off loans really just accept the idea that the bank is going to require information that they might think is intrusive. Um, the, The requirements are pretty immutable, so best to just accept it and get on with the transaction rather than cause any delay. Uh, another area is customer privacy. that's gotten a lot more attention of late, and the book contains a section that identifies some of those requirements and gives tips for seeing out of trouble to both the lenders and the lawyers.
0: Right. Yeah. The, I mean, the, the bankruptcy code does provide for some privacy, but not, I mean, I assume not as significant as a a bank would require. Correct. Right. Later on in the book, you talk more about the bankruptcy orders, including the cash collateral order and uh, debtor and uh, possession financing order. And, you know, as, as an attorney, we, we approach those in a particular way that, you know, we, we like to see things in those and, and they're the same things over and over again. But what is the deposit bank looking for in those? And what are some of the is- issues that deposit banks face when dealing with these two type of orders?
1: So I think the, one of the main messages we wanted to get across with this book is that before a bankruptcy starts, it's really in the debtor's best interest to approach its deposit bank and its uh, capital source, its its lender, and to discuss the oncoming bankruptcy with them prior to filing the case. Bankruptcies that file without coordinating with their lender and depository bank in advance, I can't say they often fail, uh, but they certainly are very choppy at the beginning, especially when all the deposit accounts are frozen day one, pending some sort of court order allowing them to be opened again, whether or not the depository is a creditor of the uh, of the debtor. So, uh, inventory uh, purchases can't occur, sometimes payroll can't be paid, other expenses can't be covered, and the company, frankly, could be out of cash and rushing directly toward a Chapter 7 liquidation without that type of pre-advanced uh, planning. So, for us, the main issue that we wanted to uh, to uh, stress was to have debtors reaching out to their bank to talking about talk about how to continue the cash management systems, how to continue use of deposit accounts, how to pay vital expenses in the early days of the case to minimize disruption in the case so the company can continue operating in bankruptcy as easily as possible. The the same is true for. Uh, the lending orders um, as well, uh, unless the is going to go to war over use of cash collateral, it's always best to have the lender and borrower, debtor, walk into court hand-in-hand so that the financing can be established pretty quickly early in the case.
2: I've had to, on behalf of clients, go into court um, you know, on an emergency basis asking for an amendment to a cash collateral order whenever the order requires the bank to do something that it just can't do under its processes. So it's important to show the order to the bank before you submit it to the court, just to make sure that it will work like you think it will work. The other type of order that the book's address in a lot of detail is the cash management order. And this is a really important order to get right, both with a deposit bank, the U.S. trustee's office, and the debtor, because otherwise the cash flow can be disrupted obviously, which can be a big problem, like Mark said. So the book is through the common cash management order provisions and explains what they are intended to address. Sometimes you need to know the right questions to ask in order to ask for the right waivers. Uh, and it also has some practice tips and things to avoid whenever you're crafting any type of order that involves cash, whether it's a cash collateral order or a
1: financing order or a cash management order.
0: Always important to talk with the banks,
1: yeah. What, one of the things we put into the book are checklists, also, not not to be a full list of all items every debtor or bank should consider, but a suggested list to try and help address these issues early.
0: Yeah, I, I looked at that's a very practical list. I mean, just taking having you know that in front of you and making sure that um, you've hit those things uh, is a, is a great way to get the case started. Okay. In the book, you also talk about Section 345 of the Bankruptcy Code and how it relates to banks. Can you tell us about that section and why it's important? Section
2: 345 is designed by Congress to make sure that the bankruptcy estates' catch assets are um, maintained with a proper stewardship. What Congress didn't want to have happen was that the debtor's money and, by extension, creditors' money uh, be lost because of an improvident investment or because of a bank failure. The Office of the U.S. Trustee also has guidelines that further flesh out uh, what they're looking for in Section 345. Now, as we've been alluding all along, sometimes you need to know the right questions to ask. There are some bank products and services that affect compliance with the U.S. Trustee guidelines in ways that aren't so obvious. For example, um, a debtor bank might be a participant in a program that does something called an insured cash sweep. And that's whenever a group of banks agree that they will spread money amongst themselves um, in order to stay below the FDIC insured limit. So it's much more complicated than that. But the, the funds aren't necessarily at the debtors' bank like the debtor's you know, like you think. So, again, you need to know the right questions to ask so that you can get the appropriate waivers from the guidelines or uh, figure out some other workaround to what you're trying to do.
1: Great. It's an interesting perspective from inside the bank because these are issues outside uh, lawyers and debtors don't really focus on. But from our point of view, we deal with the U.S. Trustee's Office on a regular basis to become approved depositories um, and to set up these systems to comply with 345, and, uh, and banks do them all differently. But these are things that uh, that's part of the banking system.
2: And it's good to go on into trying to comply with the guidelines and being on the U.S. trustees approved list with open eyes. Um, some banks, once they once they're on the list for a particular case, might find uh, that they kind of regret it later on because it's more intensive as far as reporting than they had expected or because the program requires a cash bond that, you know, they want to get
0: back. Right. So, yeah, it's important to know what that code section says and and work with the U.S. Trustee's Office. My last question is that, you know, the book also addresses um, a couple of other sections of the bankruptcy code that uh, I know are important in the bankruptcy process uh, relating to fraudulent transfers and preferences. What are some of the risks banks face with these types of avoidance actions?
2: So there are some not so obvious ways that a deposit bank can be exposed to avoidance actions. Um, I'll give you an example. There, and there's a, a cautionary tale that's discussed at some length in the book. Whenever a bank honors overdraft before bankruptcy, it might itself um, be exposed to a fraudulent conveyance claim. And, you know, a bank might be willing to do this if it's an important customer to the bank. They want to help the customer out. The customer has assured them that the money's coming the next day. Um, The bank might honor overdrafts, but it can get itself into trouble that way. And so that, you know, banks should do that with their eyes open. Uh, There's another line of cases that's fairly new that's testing whether a deposit into a debtor's bank account is a transfer to the bank for fraudulent transfer purposes. As Mark talked about earlier, whenever a deposit is made into a deposit account, the bank can take the money and make other loans with it. So, you know, a clever lawyer came up with the concept that, well, maybe that's a fraudulent transfer. And so far, the cases have held that it's not, but it's an interesting. it's an interesting argument and one to definitely keep abreast of. The um, cash management systems can affect parties other than the bank. For example, if you have a, a large business enterprise with different companies that uh, use a cash management system that sweeps money from one company to another, that can give rise to fraudulent transfer issues as well.
1: Right, and banks banks receive transfers all the time, sometimes merely as a conduit, so somebody's depositing money into an account to wire it to a third party and then the person depositing the money in the account files bankruptcy shortly after that. So when the bank serves as a conduit, does that expose it to avoidance action um, an avoidance action? And the cases generally say no when they're acting in the conduit, but it doesn't mean that somebody couldn't make a claim. So the idea of behind the book is also uh, give a checklist for bankers to think about these issues when they understand that one of their customers is stressed to try and minimize that exposure.
0: Well, we've covered a lot of um, different issues that the book lays out, and there's a lot that we haven't covered that's in the book. Is there anything that I missed that you all want to talk about in the next couple minutes, or should we just have folks read the book and, and take a, ch- a look in, in the book?
2: There's an interesting chapter about garnishments. Um, it might be pending as of the petition date that's also worth taking a look at. Um, it discusses who's, you know, who's obligated to do what when you have a pending garnishment of frozen funds whenever a bankruptcy case is filed. Um, one thing about the book is it really is just a general guide. The, the case law from state to state and jurisdiction to jurisdiction and bank processes from bank to bank really vary a lot. So it's not a book that necessarily gives the answers to every question, but it should at least point people in the right direction of the things they should think about uh, and where they can start their research.
0: That's great. Well, I appreciate both of you, Lisa and Mark, taking your time to not only join us today but also for your hard work on the book. Um, I know ABI is excited to have this book in its library. Um, We haven't had one about banking and, and bankruptcy. So this is a, a great addition to our library. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And for those of you listening, if you're interested in purchasing banking and bankruptcy, please visit the ABI bookstore at abi.org bookstore. And from ABI headquarters, thank you for listening and have a great day.